The views expressed in the following program do not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB. Live from the WGBB studios in Merrick, New York, this is Sports Talk New York. Good evening and hello again, everybody. Welcome to Sports Talk New York on WGBB here in Merrick, Long Island, New York. Bill Donahue here. I'm taking you through the first hour on the Sunday night. It's the sixth day of November 2022. Our engineer, Brian Graves, is with us as always right across the way. I'm happy to welcome you aboard tonight. So glad that you could be with us. We've got a great show lined up for you tonight as always. Up first, we'll speak with the former catcher of the New York Mets. Josh Tolley joins us. In the second half, we'll welcome in a very special guest, just in time for Thanksgiving. Well, we don't have any turkey, but we have the famous chicken will be with us. Ted Giannoulis stops by. So sit back, relax, get comfortable, enjoy this edition of Sports Talk New York tonight. Here on GBB is always a great show with great people and good sports talk and memories up ahead tonight. Social media. We're on Facebook. We are on Twitter. For now, we're on Twitter anyway. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter at B. Donahue WGBB and at WGBB Sports Talk. You can follow the station there. And all shows are cataloged out on the website at AM 1240 WGBB.com. If you miss one, don't worry. Just punch it up at your leisure. Well, our first guest, he was a catcher with the Toronto Blue Jays and, of course, the New York Mets during his major league career. And we all remember June 1st, 2012, he caught the first no-hitter in Mets history, thrown, of course, by Johan Santana. We are anxious to catch up and see what he's up to these days. It's a pleasure to welcome to the show tonight Josh Tolley. Josh, good evening. Bill, thanks for having me on. Looking forward uh, looking forward to a good conversation tonight. And I think we're going to have one, Josh. Here we go. Now, you grew up in a place called Breeze, Illinois. Uh, who were your sports heroes and teams when you were a kid? I grew up um, 30 miles east of St. Louis, Missouri. Okay. Um, so I was a I was a Cardinals fan. Um, Mike Matheny was probably the guy that I tried to, as I got older, that I kind of tried to tool my craft after. But mm-hmm. I, I grew up watching The Wizard, and I think watching Ozzie Smith play shortstop was how I really found um, the love for the love for baseball that I have. And that's a great guy to follow. We we uh, see him, of course, up in Cooperstown every summer. And uh, you couldn't have picked a greater guy to to emulate to uh, follow. Definitely, Josh. Now, you signed a letter of intent to play uh, Division Two ball at Quincy University, uh, but then you were drafted by the Mets in the thirteenth round. How did that all work out? Yeah, so I I signed with Quincy. Um high school career. Mm-hmm. I think I, I want to say it was probably the signing period that you had, a, there was this little window that you could actually sign um, classmen. So I did. Um, I, I wanted to try to set myself up um, obviously for um, some sort of uh, and I did that and I, I, I didn't think I was going to be in a position to get drafted personally. 
um, given that I was, I, I think that happened when I was a sophomore. And the, I guess the best way to put it is I, I was put in a position to get in front of some scouts, and I did it. And instead of it being colleges at, at my high school baseball games, it turned out to be uh, professional baseball teams, and and I was in a position, obviously, to sign uh, to sign a professional contract after getting drafted. Nice, yeah. You, you went in the thirteenth round in two thousand five, of course, to the Mets. They sent you to Class A Savannah, who, of course, are the Sand Nats. Uh, you you played down there. You've really uh, fashioned yourself more of a singles hitter. You walked more than you struck out, and uh, how did you uh, devise those skills? Yeah, Bill, that that's a good question. That was that was my game. I mean, mm-hmm. just to get hits, uh, put together good at bats. That was something. Even it, it actually paid dividends when I was in the major leagues, and that was kind of the approach of the club at the time: was see pitches, quality at bats, put the ball in play, don't punch out. And I, I took that, I took that onus upon myself when I was much younger in my professional career. And had a, I mean, with, I, I try not to boast, but the one thing I, I, I had a skill of all, and I was, I had the ability to put the ball in play. And I think that was, that was something that kept me around, um, for, for a good chunk of time in the major leagues. But also kept me around the game, given that I had that ability to do that. With that being said, as the game started evolving and getting into the launch angles and home runs and doubles and homers, that was kind of my, uh, I guess, if you will, my writing on the wall from an offensive standpoint, because it just there wasn't a whole lot of value in just hitting singles and walking and going standing at first base. Yeah, nobody's doing that anymore, Josh. You're right. Nobody's yeah, doing it. you That's you right. watch a uh, quick pitch in the morning on MLB, and it's home run derby. It's strikeouts, it's home runs, and and that's all it is now. In, in that's the, right. In the Mets system, were there any coaches or any guys that helped fashion your style of play uh, and had an influence on you on the way up? Yeah, there's there's a couple guys, and and I I'm I'm sure if people listen to this. They'll, uh, you'll have to forgive me, but this from day one professional baseball, Gary Carter was very until him and, um, Scotty Hunter, who was my hitting coach, they were instrumental from an aspect of understanding 18 years old, trying to understand what it's like to be a professional baseball player was incredibly challenging. And I always say the joke, right? When I was in high school, my my mother did my laundry. My parents cooked for me. I, I there was no responsibilities. I just focused on playing sports and getting good grades. So they they helped me with that transition. But I think um, from a player development standpoint, there's two guys that definitely come to mind, and it's Bob Nadel, who was my catching coordinator, who in fact is still there as the catching coordinator, and Tim Tuffle, who who also was in the organization. Mm-hmm. I think those are two people who. Uh, Number one, um, a skill a skill set helped me tremendously. But more importantly, I, I think they in me and they they beat their beat the table, they beat their chest, and they they each of them gave me an opportunity to uh, 
to continue as as I was coming through the minor leagues. Very interesting. Josh, very, very, very good guys, very good names there. Now you went to St. Lucie. You had, you had a good year there, hit 300. They sent you to the Arizona Fall League. Then they assigned you to double A and you seemed to blossom at Binghamton. Uh, 328, a homer and 46 RBIs. Uh, you were an all-star. Uh, and as you said, a solid singles hitter. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that that was important. That was important back then, Bill. Like, it was important to get hits. It was important to find your way on base. And I think the, the numbers, the numbers obviously speak for, speak for how I handled it. But, but that was, I knew my role. I had some big boppers in the lineup and my role was to get on base for those guys. And I've, um, I always found a ton of value in that. And, and I think as, as, if um, you know anybody that's tuned in to watch the postseason, they realize at the end of the day that's what, in fact, is it. It's really what it's about. Right. That was quite evident. You're you're exactly right. We're speaking with Josh Tolley tonight on the program. Now, Dan Worthen was really a big fan of yours, wasn't he? When you when uh, you were at spring training. Yeah. No, Dan. Dan was somebody that guy who's been in. When I got the opportunity to get to the major leagues, Dan obviously was in the big leagues for a long time. And being under those kind of, um, I, I was, I was young, I was raw. So I had a lot to learn when it came to understanding how to call a game, how to run a pitching staff. And Dan, Dan was, uh, quite instrumental in, uh, helping me navigate that. Now, August 31st, 2009, you're called up to the bigs. Your first major league at bat, you get a base hit. You remember that one, Josh? I'll never forget it. Yeah. Um, in Denver. Yeah. In Denver, off of um, Staten Island uh, native, I think, Jason Marquis. Right. And uh, I would hate to leave out, given that everybody thinks catchers are just uh, – uh, slugs on the bases. I did steal. I did steal the base. There you go. About two pitches into the next at bat. So I, I, I should put that on the airways. Uh, we, but no, I, that, 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 that'll be a day I'll never forget. Um, obviously for, for my family and, and myself and you, it, it is incredible watching it all kind of come full circle and, and getting the opportunity. And then once you get the opportunity, you got to find a way to stay there, um, for more than just a cup of coffee. Right, that that's a good goal and a goal of all all you guys for sure. Now, 2010, they sent you to Buffalo, which at that time was the AAA of the Mets. They called you up in June. First home run, solo homer off Barry Enright at Chase Field. Remember that one? That's right. And yeah. um, I'm sure some people will say it snuck over the wall, which in fact it did. But I say it's it was way out of there. Exactly. And thanks to uh, thanks. Thanks to my teammates in the bullpen, I was fortunate enough to uh, even land the baseball that uh, that uh, I, I believe a lady got, and she wanted K Rod's autograph. So he said, "No problem, I'll sign a ball for you if if you exchange it." So uh, ha- obviously, hats off to the bullpen there. Yeah, good job by K Rod for the, getting the lady to fork it over. That's for sure. Now, um, October first, twenty ten, walk off homer off Tyler Clippard. How about that one? Yeah, no, that was um, that's a biggie. It's funny, Bill. It, it it's funny if you go back and watch the video of when I like round third base and all my teammates. Um, we're missing a, a handful of teammates because 
I was never known for the home run, much less late in the ball game. And I, I feel like I caught everybody by surprise. So you see all the guys like flooding out of uh, out of the dugout uh, as as I was touching home plate. Um, but no, that was and that was to be honest, that was in Tyler Clippard's uh, prime. So that, those are always those are always good moments that I think um, you, you take in, you'll never forget. Um, things you can always pass along, tell your kids. But uh, my my kids are into it. They. Uh, <laughs> They probably watched the highlight more times than I have. <laughs> That's great. Yeah, as you said, you can live that moment and live it, live it good many, many times. Now, now I want to talk to you about uh, the injury you suffered, the concussion. I saw a picture of this. I think it, it was I Googled you, and this picture came up, or it was on eBay or something. The uh, collision you had with former Met, and uh, he was with the Phillies then, Ty Wigginton. Tell us about that play. That's right. Yeah, so um, it was yesterday. Bobby Purnell was pitching. Mm-hmm. Chopper in front of home plate. Fouls the ball. I take my mask off. And I've always been very conscious of trying to leave my mask on as much as I can. Bobby delivers the ball to home plate. And Ty Wigington, th- this was before the the collision rules were, were in effect. So there's always a handful of guys. You knew Adam Dunn wasn't going to slide. You knew Ty Wigington wasn't going to slide. And uh, Wiggy was kind of like stuck in between if he was going to kind of try to bowl me over or if he was going to slide. And I caught an elbow, obviously a, a complete accident, um, right in the side of my head and just dropped me, yeah. dropped me to the ground. And and much um, after that, I, I, I remember just very little snippets of it, but I think that was uh, that was a moment where – was lucky because I, I do believe if he would have bowled me over, it could have probably been worse. But um, spent the uh, the duration, I, the a lot of time on the disabled list for that for that injury. Understood, understood. Now, we want to of course talk about the no hitter, Johan Santana's no hitter, the first in franchise history for those folks uh, who just uh, landed on the planet, June first, twenty twelve. That was. Now, you'd caught Johan before. Uh, how was his stuff that night? Um, in the bullpen? Yeah. I, I'll, I'll say this. Going into the game, well, two things, Bill. I, I think, number one, you're kind of on how the night's going to go by a guy's bullpen pregame. Mm-hmm. But I think but it, it wasn't. It wasn't great. There was nothing that stood out. Okay. Um, he did have a feel for the, a little slider that he was throwing, which obviously I think everybody knows his changeup was kind of his bread and butter, but he had a good feel for this little cutter slider thing, and we were able to utilize that early in the game to our advantage to then obviously get back to the changeup where, uh, where that, as I alluded to, that was his bread and butter. Right. Now, did you realize uh, about the the whole concept of the no, of the no hitter? Were you aware of the the Mets history with no hitters? No, I wasn't until Jay Horowitz mentioned it to me uh, right directly after the game. I had no idea. Wow! I would have assumed the the rich history of the franchise. Sure, right. I would have assumed, and and the, the the pitchers that have come through there, somebody must have thrown a no hitter. Mm-hmm. So to be. Uh, to, of the first one in Mets history, as, as I said, with with the rich 
talent that was coming that has been through there and the the history. I mean, the Seavers, Goodens. I mean, the list just keeps compiling, right? I mean, that's just just uh, two to name a few. But it, it is it is incredible to think that that was true, um, and that was to be part of of what forever will be the first no-hitter in Mets history. Yeah, we suffered through a lot of one-hitters, Josh, before that in the, in the, in the previous years. We, I, I, Bill, I, Bill, I got to be honest. I didn't even I didn't even double check to see. How many one-hitters there were? Oh, yeah. There was ki- the, the biggest killer, I was 10 years old when Seaver threw that, they call it the imperfect game against the Chicago Cubs uh, w- with uh, one out in the ninth inning, gave up a, a single, and uh, he was electric that night, and so was Shea Stadium. It was amazing, but that's a story for another day. Now, what, when did you realize uh, that you guys had a no-no going that night? catcher you always think about you, you, you do think about it but i think it became really surreal in about the seventh inning okay um to give you some light into johan's personality is he's very um very talkative on start days he's um middle of the game he he's, he'll always crack a joke here and there in the seventh inning he sat in the corner by himself and I knew that at, at that moment we actually had something uh, we, we had something brewing and, and that it was starting to become real. And then obviously the Mike Baxter play up against the wall that uh, unfortunately um, he was injured on the play. But but that was I, I think those were a couple defining moments in the game that that really stand out to me. Now, I spoke to Terry Collins a couple of months ago on the show. He didn't know about the history either, Josh. Did did Terry want Johan to come out? And, and of course, Johan did not want to come out at all. It, yeah, I think that's right. I, I mean, competition. These are um, is a bulldog. He's not going to he, – he knew what was at stake, and I don't think he would have given the ball off. I mean – I, and I don't think Terry and Dan would have wanted that either. And, you know, to be honest, there was a handful of, uh, I think, intentional walks that went towards the pitch count. So people always uh, get a little wrapped up and, oh, he threw 134 pitches. But at the end of the day, like a couple intentional walks, now the number goes down. I, this was history, and this was something that um, I, I think Johan would never – he would regret it if – if he said, no, I don't want the ball for the ninth inning. And an amazing night it was, and we'll never forget that. And Josh Tolley, who's with us tonight, was a huge part of that. Now, getting traded to Toronto, Josh, how did you feel about leaving the Mets and, and you know, heading north? Well, it was hard. I mean, the, yeah. the, I, I grew up with the Mets, right? They, they were the club that drafted me. Mm-hmm. Uh, long conversation. Uh, obviously with Sandy and Jeff Wilpon alike. And it, it was something where they gave me the opportunity and we were in a kind of a growing phase, if you will, with a bunch of younger players. And, a, and it would have been nice to obviously see it through, but, but being that it is part of the industry um, of, of changes. And learn that a little bit later in your career as like it, you, you understand the business piece of it. But I, um, at first, it was hard to uh, wrap my heads around the uh, wrap my head around the idea that I wouldn't be in 
the blue and orange anymore. Right. For those folks who may have forgotten, Josh went to the Blue Jays along with R.A. Dickey and Mike Nickius. And, uh, of course, coming back to New York was Travis Darno, the much detested these days Noah Syndergaard, John Buck. And uh, I got to tell you, uh, Josh, about Travis Darno. I mean, this guy goes to Tampa Bay, starts lighting it up. He, he's now, uh, huge in Atlanta. They gave him every opportunity to succeed here, and the guy never did it. So the, I'm just, yeah. Yeah, I don't ask for your comment, but I just want to let you know how I feel about Travis Darno. Uh, not, not real hot on the guy, but, uh, we were sorry to see you go. Now, you became RA's personal catcher, really. Tell, tell yeah. us a little bit about, uh, catching the knuckleball. I remember, I think it was Bob Euchre who said the easiest way to catch the knuckler, wait until it stops rolling and then pick it up. Uh, yeah, and to be clear, and to be clear, Bill, I've had a many a days like that. that yeah. Just like, <laughs> yeah. You know, defensively you don't have it and the knuckleball's moving all over. I, I always say, the, the worse that I looked behind the plate, the better the knuckleball was that day, which means good things are going to happen as long as you don't let too many balls go by when there's a, when there's a runner on third. But um, it was kind of a, it, it was a thing that it started in 2010 when I knew I was going to be assigned to Buffalo and R.A. was as well, and he was a starting pitcher, and I, I didn't want it to be a day where I didn't play because I couldn't catch a knuckleball. So I just learned how to do it, and um, obviously as, as we continued the growth um, – throughout the other season, I had to make adjustments. And uh, Doug, Doug Mirabelli was incredibly um, – I, I mean, I'm incredibly grateful for Doug, given that I was, in a, I was in a bit of a rut, and I had an hour-long conversation with him, and, I, I, and he kind of laid it all out to me and gave me a couple different mechanical things, some mental stuff, and – um, I, I do, I do think that was a big piece as to why I, I was, I was more comfortable doing it than most guys. I mean, the idea that you're going to lead the league in pass balls, especially for, uh, for baseball players, like we, we all have egos to a point, but, uh, when you catch a knuckleball, you have to let the ego, uh, kind of go away and just, just wear it when, when you do lead the league in pass balls every year. So basically, Josh, uh, RA's throwing the ball. You don't know where it's going to go. I have no idea. I had no idea where it right. was going. Oh man, yeah, <laughs> that that that's rough. Now, how many gloves did you have? How many of the big first baseman type catcher's mitts did you have? Yeah, so I used a Pro Spark model, which was a Rawlings glove, uh-huh. and it, I, I I guess the best way I can describe it is um, a women's fast pitch catcher's mitt. Uh, I needed I needed all the extra padding. I needed the bigger circumference, and um, that I mean that was the only way to do it. I tried it with my regular glove early in my career, and that uh, that didn't work. Once I got comfortable with the bigger with the bigger mitt, it was uh, by no means easy, but uh, I, I, I always felt as if I had a chance. Yeah, <laughs> I can imagine. Now you you ended the career with with the Yankees. You signed a minor league deal with the Yankees, and and that's a. I always find it weird when the the Mets go to the Yankees. The Yankees come here. When did you decide it was time to pack it in, Josh? Uh when guys, when every pitcher that took the mound was throwing a hundred. Wow. Um, yeah. That's that that was kind of the writing on the wall, and I got I have three kids at home and. 
Um, my wife has her own business. There's a time where, like, at what point do you want to continue to run around the minor leagues and, and you know, 5 o'clock flights if you're in the uh, Pacific Coast League, overnight bus rides in the International League. Like, there's, there's a point where uh, you kind of got to wake up and smell the coffee a bit, and, and these guys – to be honest, like the the players were getting bigger, stronger, faster, and I was I was digressing, and I think that was that was a true moment of um, being around some of the bit that. So 2020 was the COVID season, and I was in Scranton for the um, I was at the alternate site. Mm-hmm. I, I live only an hour from Scranton, so it made it a little bit easier to be at home. But watching the, these guys are specimens. Not, not that they weren't before, but this is like these guys. Everybody is throwing a hundred, and and you you get to a point where it's like you you feel as if you can't uh, keep up with them, and and that's kind of where I was, and I thought it was the right time. Good. They were speaking with Josh Tolley tonight on the program. Now, one great moment this year with the Mets, aside from uh, them winning 101 games, Josh, was the wonderful old-timers day that, that we held this year for the yeah. first time in many years. And it, uh, they promised to do it again. Uh, ju- just uh, a great bunch of guys getting together. Of course, Jay who's a friend of the show, did a tremendous job in bringing everybody together. Tell us about your feeling being on the field that day. Yeah, it, I, you know what? It, it was less about being on the field. It was more about being in the clubhouse with mm-hmm. Hall of Famers and um, the the history of the game and, and just listening to these. I It, it was – I always joke with Jay – I said, Jay, it was a bit uncomfortable for me, given that I was 35 years old. <laughs> like, it's not, I'm not old, right? Like, stop calling it, can we change the name of it? But, um, so it, it was cool, um, being around these guys who played in the 80s together and, and even quite frankly before and listening, just sitting back, listening to them tell stories, I think was what I thrived on the most of, of, of the entire thing. Yeah, uh, I, I can agree with you. Being around some of the 69 guys in Cooperstown at, at, uh, different events that they're, they're at, uh, it gives you such a feeling of history and, uh, brings back y- your childhood, really, for me, Josh. That, that's the way it, it feels. But that was, yeah, that was, that was that, a tremendous day. Yeah, and then you get a guy like Steve Dillon, uh, pitched the first, Night game in Shea Stadium history. I, I had never heard of the gentleman before until they brought him back this year, and and boom, well he becomes a cult hero again, and uh, just things like that made it a wonderful event. Yeah, and, and and I have to tell you, I mean, for anybody that's listening, Jay Horowitz, Emily Epstein, and their staff that put this on, they did just an incredible job. Yeah, of- I agree. Or from from organizing it to um, the, the the simple things of like giving, I'm not a big I like it, it's weird for me to watch players being mic'd up in games and do in game interviews, but in that setting it was really cool to I, I had an earpiece in and I had a microphone and to be able to listen to the the guys call the game and talk about the the history of the Mets I I just think there was something 
that there was something to be said about it and and that their staff just did an incredible job from top to bottom definitely that's true josh now what keeps you busy these days well, I, I am currently employed by the Players Association. Nice. So I do, I do some union work and it's, uh, th- things are good. And obviously three kids run, running around between soccer, basketball, violin, piano, dance, and the list continues. That, yeah, <laughs> those, those, those tend to be the things that, uh, that keep me moving. You're a busy boy. Yeah, I can see that. Now, if you were playing today, Josh, one, one final question. What would your walk-up song be today? Oh. <laughs> Come on hey, now. You know Come what? <laughs> I'm probably Black Betty. That was that was an old favorite of mine <laughs> yeah. back in the day. Yeah, I know that. Uh, although, my, sure. m- although my kids would disagree, we were, uh, it, it's funny, we were actually roasting peppers. Real quick story, we were just roasting um, peppers tonight kind of the final garden clean out roast the peppers and my kids are running around doing this new dance called the gritty and it's like oh i i just couldn't succumb to the to the new music so i think i i think black betty would be uh would be my uh my music of choice bam a lamb there we go josh well That's right. it's been a pleasure to have you with us tonight josh i thanks for taking your time out of your sunday night to spend it with us uh down here on long island uh, we appreciate it and we'll stay in touch with you that sounds great, Bill. Thanks for having me. That's Josh Tolley, ladies and gentlemen. Up next on Sports Talk New York, we'll welcome in a special guest, the man behind, or rather the man inside the famous chicken, Ted Giannoulis. Stick around, folks. Listening to Sports Talk New York. Tune in every Sunday night at 8 p.m. on Long Island's WGBB. Broadcasting on 95.9 FM and 1240 AM. Or listen live online at WGBBradio.com. Stay connected to Sports Talk New York on WGBB by following us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at WGBB Sports Talk. You're listening to Sports Talk New York on Long Island's WGBB. And now, back to the show. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we are back with Sports Talk New York on WGBB. I hope everyone is having a wonderful weekend. The Fall Classic now history, all we have now, of course, is the hot stove, and we'll try to stoke those flames before pitchers and catchers in February come along. As always, uh, I like to begin the winter with the great passage from The Green Fields of the Mind by A. Bartlett Giamatti, and it goes like this. It breaks your heart. It is designed to break your heart. The game begins in the spring when everything else begins again and it blossoms in the summer, filling the afternoons and evenings, and then as soon as the chill rain comes, it stops and leaves you to face the fall alone. You count on it, rely on it to buffer the passage of time, to keep the memory of sunshine and high skies alive, and then just when the days are all twilight, when you need it most, it stops. Today, November 6th, a Sunday of rain and broken branches and leaf-clogged drains, and the slick streets, it stopped. 
and summer was gone. Well, now we look out the window and wait for spring, as Roger Hornsby said. But we'll move on to our next guest, a man behind, or rather inside, what is probably the most famous sports mascot of all time, the San Diego Chicken, or just the chicken known around the world, the San Diego Union. Uh, sports editor, the great Jack Murphy, brother of Bob, wrote, The chicken has the soul of a poet. He is an embryonic Charlie Chaplin in chicken feathers. Time Magazine once said, More than anything else, baseball should learn to peddle the real nostalgia. Jackie Robinson breaking the color barrier, Lou Gehrig's farewell speech, and the first appearance of the San Diego chicken. And, of course, Rolling Stone simply headlined him, The Legend, while others have called him the Sir Lawrence Olivier of mascots. Uh, in, in the 1984 review of the Baseball Bunch, uh, Bob Rubin praised this man's contribution to the series, writing, The Chicken may be the most gifted physical comic since Curly, Larry, and Moe. Now that is praise. We're happy to have him with us during this Thanksgiving season. We don't have a turkey, so we'll bring you the chicken. It's a pleasure <laughs> to welcome to the show Ted Giannoulis. <laughs> Ted, good evening. Hey, good evening, Bill. Thank you for that very warm monologue introduction. Oh, it's great to have you. Great to have you. Just give us a little insight, Ted, on the origination of the character of the chicken. Well, believe it or not, Bill, it started off as a radio station promotion. Wow. Back in, back in 1974, I was just a college kid at San Diego State University and working at a small campus radio station when in walks someone from a rock and roll station, a legitimate station in town. <laughs> and and um, there are about four or five of us just sitting around, shooting the breeze, what we're going to do over the Easter break, the spring break. And he says to us here, standing in the doorway, no less, he says, hey, we've got uh, an opening at the station for a promotion, and uh, we need somebody to, to work for two bucks an hour just for one week to pass out candy Easter eggs at the zoo. And we all went crazy, like, hey, yeah, I'll, I'll, we'll do that. And he says, you got, you got to wear a chicken suit. And so I, I was in the back of the room and says, I want to be that guy. And he says, you, the short guy, you'll fit the suit best of all. I'll take you right now. <laughs> and so I went to the zoo. I gave away my little candy Easter eggs. But then you know what? It was opening day coming up for the Padres. Ray Kroc, the founder of McDonald's, mm -hmm. it was his first night as the new owner of the Padres. And I figured, you know, I bet I could get into the game for free with this getup. So I called up the Padres to make sure. They said, sure, come on down. We'll take anybody because they were having real attendance. Well, they were having real attendance problems back in those days. And so I showed up. They let me come in to the grandstand. I started cavorting around. The fans went crazy with it, and then the media had fun with it. And a chicken was born or hatched, shall I say? Yeah, that you the the attendance doubled. You really demonstrated uh, your ability to joke with the players and the umpires and connect with the fans. It really worked. Yeah, you know that kind of developed over the years, Bill. Because what had happened is I started uh, cavorting in the grandstands, you know, with the fans, and it was getting laughter and it was attracting the attention not only of the uh, players and the coaches and the, and the umpires, but also up in the front office. And Ray Kroc, who was uh, very, very meticulous about having the fans happy at all times, he loved it. 
He, you know, he couldn't figure out. Fans were leaving the game happy, even though we were in last place. And he says, you know, this chicken guy is making everybody laugh every night like crazy. I love it. <laughs> and so they, he ingratiated me into the, into, with the team, although I was never their employee. I was just like outside. And Padres never paid me a nickel back then. I was just getting paid by the radio station for two bucks an hour. But it just uh, developed into a cult following, and then from there, eventually, uh, the town following, and then regionally, and then eventually nationally, as cable uh, uh, came into into being, um, and it really worked out. And uh, I just, uh, I just, I just had fun with with the fans. That's all I was trying to do, and I was uh, working for a rock and roll radio station, just dressed up as their ambassador at large in a chicken suit. Amazing. Now, you were really the Cal Ripken Jr. of, of mascots, Ted, because she, at one point you did 520 Padres games in a row. You worked at the Clippers games before they moved to L.A. Uh, ju- just amazing. We have Ted Giannoulis with us tonight. And uh, there was one point I want to ask you about. They let you go for, for some reason. They They put another guy in the chicken outfit. And the yeah. fans knew that it wasn't you inside there. Booed the guy. Oh yes, yes, <laughs> absolutely, Bill. Yes, uh, in in 1979, uh, I, I came to literally loggerheads with with uh, station management over my career growth in a chicken suit. Believe it or not. Yeah. And so they they fired me, filed a lawsuit to prevent me from branching out on my own, and but the courts eventually ruled in my favor. So, but. It was front page news here when I was fired. It was a big deal. And, um, the media uh, played it up and, but the, the station decided we're going to put somebody else in that suit and send him out there. Well, he was, it was not well received and it lasted <laughs> all of one, one game it lasted. That was it. And they, they, uh, they packed it up, but then the courts ruled in my favor and said, yeah, I could wear uh, the chicken suit, any chicken suit I wanted to wear and continue my career. And and did so, and then I had a grand hatching. Right, Jack Murphy. Yeah, in Jack Murphy Stadium, sold out the, the sold out the Murph as as a San Diegans still loyally called it the Murph, and uh, and it was uh, a tremendous uh, moment of, uh, to say so myself. Uh, standing ovation, all for uh, uh, again hatching out of a, a, a suit that I'm I'm wearing still to this day. And and uh, yeah, it was a what a moment. Uh, they played the uh, 2001 A Space Odyssey theme as the as the egg hatched. Wow! <laughs> oh yeah, a crowning moment. There, yeah, and, and from there, it's interesting to note you touched on it briefly there, Bill. That um, uh, if I went on and and I never missed a single engagement, a single game in in my career. If you took if you took uh, Lou Gehrig's uh, 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 string, the streak, and you merged it with Cal Ripken's streak, it still would not match <laughs> my consecutive game streak of never missing a single game due to injury or illness whatsoever. That is amazing. That That is absolutely wonderful. Now, I want to ask you, Ted, about the Baseball Bunch, which was the Saturday morning kids' TV show uh, yes. done with Johnny Bench and Tommy Lasorda, and you sort of played the foil to, to Johnny Bench. Tell us <laughs> how, how that worked out. 
It was a great show. It ran for five years. <laughs> right. Five years. It actually won three Emmy Awards, believe it or not. And and uh, get it. And I and I like to say this, by the way, it was when it ran in New York. It was the number one rated show in its time slot. It beat American Bandstand. We were proud to say, there you, you go. know, for rating. Yeah. Yes. And so, but the the, the show was basically bad news. Bad News Bears learning about baseball, and uh, and we had a guest host on with us every week with Johnny and myself and and the kids and and the, these kids ranged up to about age ten from basically age five to age ten, and they would learn about baseball in a comedic way and and it was so popular and it was so well received. Believe it or not, even the great late Ted Williams called us up and he said. I want to be on that show for an episode. Wow. And he never, he never did any kind of, uh, of, uh, TV. No. Uh, whatsoever. But he liked that show so much, he wanted to be on it, and we were honored to have him. And we had all the superstars of the day, um, on that show. We had Ozzy Smith, and we had, uh, Raleigh Fingers, and, uh, uh, we had, uh, Oh, Cal Ripken, of course. Yeah. And, and Dusty, Dusty Baker was on there. And, uh, uh, Pete Rose, uh, uh, uh Mike Schmidt. It was, uh, incredible. Uh, the, 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 uh, or, you know, I, 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 I try, I'm trying to think now, second thought. I don't know if Mike Schmidt was on there on second thought, but I, for, we did 50 shows. It was just a summertime show. And, um, and we had, uh, virtually, uh, as, oh, uh, the Hawk, do, uh, 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 Dawkins, uh, Andre, uh, Andre Dawson. Andre Dawson. Yeah. yeah. Andre Dawson. Absolutely. And, and, and so it was incredible. All the, uh, the players that we had on there. And boy, they were, they were so great. And Johnny was fantastic with all the kids and, and the hosts that we had on there. And, uh, and he had a great sense of humor for me to, to, to be goofing with him at all times. Good man, Johnny Bench. Yeah, the, I'm sure, folks, if you go to YouTube, you can find a couple of uh, episodes of the Baseball Bunch, and you'd see Johnny Bench and Ted Giannoulis out there doing a wonderful job. Now, as, as I mentioned to you uh, during uh, our emailing back and forth, Ted, I wanted to ask you about your meeting with President Ronald Reagan in 1988. I wanted to ask, did they have to shake you down underneath the suit to see if anything was happening in there how did how did tell us about the security and meeting with the great communicator you're not going to believe this bill but <laughs> i was uh, i was asked by the white house uh, to appear uh, with the president and that happened to be that appearance that i made the uh, the on stage appearance with uh, president reagan was his last campaign of his entire career and and I was asked to join him at this huge rally downtown. And believe it or not, I was not frisked, checked, or anything else whatsoever. Wow. They trusted me. It was a different era back then. Yeah. It, uh, they, I was basically uh, on, on my good word. And and um, it was remarkable. Uh, and, and a great sense of humor. Of course, you know, Reagan being a, a former uh, baseball announcer, uh, he was quite familiar with me. You know, and um, I was I was honored to be asked to to help introduce him uh, to the audience on stage. What a, what a magnanimous uh, 
offer that you did to there and uh, to to bring out the president. What what an occasion that was. Now I want to ask you, Ted, uh, the chicken was named one of the most powerful people, one of the 100 most powerful people in sports for the 20th century by the sporting news. And that that's when the whole Lawrence Olivier of mascots and perhaps the most influential mascot in sports history came about. Do, do any other mascots, did any of those guys come to you for advice, the fanatic or anybody like that who, who's pretty popular now? Oh, yeah. Well, let me tell you, first of all, I was highly honored. One of the greatest honors I've ever received. That's amazing. was by the, the sporting news editors. The, the, I'm right there up there with, with, with Gretzky, Muhammad <laughs> Ali. Yeah. Pete, Pete Rosell was, was first on the list, but uh, there were athletes and executives, uh, people who had an influence of sports over the 20th century. And there I am, listed among them. I'm telling you, it was, it's, it's mind boggling. But you ask me about, did anybody else come to me? Believe it or not, let me tell you something, Bill. I happen to be the father of the fanatic. Wow. The Philadelphia, the Philadelphia Phillies approached me in the winter of 70, uh, 77 going into 78. And they asked me to consult with them at length at great length with them, and I did so. Um, and they don't like to talk about that very much these days, but I consulted with them for hours and hours, uh, 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 long distance. Uh, it got to the point with uh, my contact, Phil Sullivan, uh, Frank Sullivan, who's since passed away, but uh, he was the executive there. And um, uh, they were asking me all kinds of questions and and who's the guy, to, what kind of guy they should put in it. Because they saw the success I, I was having here. And even though I wasn't a Padre employee, I was still working for the rock and roll radio station in town locally. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, they they uh, they asked me to, to consult with them at length, and, and, and I did. And uh, it worked out for them. And also the Seattle Mariners. Also had a, a famous mascot, uh, known as the Moose. Right. The Mariner Moose. And they called on me. And of course, there's several minor league teams that also uh, called on me to, uh, consult with them. And I was happy to do so. N- never charged a nickel. Never charged a nickel for, for what I knew to, to help them out. Wonderful, Ted. Ted Giannoulis with us tonight on the program. A little, pre-Thanksgiving chicken uh, dinner for us here tonight. But Now, by 2015, Ted, uh, you made 5,100 appearances in 917 different facilities in all 50 states, eight countries, and you, you went through more than 100 chicken suits? Oh, easily. Wow. Easily. Yeah, you know, and and one of them is glass encased at uh, Cooperstown. I'm proud to say. Just saw you it know? last week, right? Yep. <laughs> That's a very high honor. Talk about high honors. Doesn't get any higher than that. Nope. I, you know, and it's I have fans sending me pictures all the time uh, to autograph of them standing next to it. You know, <laughs> so. But uh, uh, yeah, it's it's, and I'm told it's it's one of the more popular exhibits at the at the Hall of Fame in Cooperstown, and so. But uh, uh, yeah, you know, it's um, uh, yeah, it's I've had those uh, on occasion. I've actually sent uh, a few of the costumes out uh, to sports bars that they've mounted, you know, over their bars and all that sort of thing. So it's. Uh, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a, it's been a high honor. 
Definitely. Now, uh, how many years have you been been playing the chicken, Ted? I've, it, I think it's about 48 now. Okay. And I think I'm going to keep... Yeah, but i got to state, uh, Bill, I'm in semi-retirement now, and I don't make the appearances like I used to, mm-hmm. you know, and... Um, but uh, i, I got to tell you, the heart is willing, but the bones are saying something else, okay? Right. <laughs> I'm still a, spring, still a spring chicken at heart, but I'm telling you, nobody can play forever. And so I'm just in uh, semi-retirement now, and I, I don't make the... Um, the uh, the game appearances uh, like I used to. I might make a cameo every now and then here and there, but I do uh, uh, more uh, more uh, easier types of appearances uh, nowadays. But Understood. Let, let me let me tell you, I I never wavered in my enjoyment of it. It's uh, it's it's given me so many personal laughs and and fulfillment, and 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 I'm heartened when other fans have enjoyed it as well. Some situations I want to talk to you about, Ted. Uh, 1978, security guards attempt to eject the chicken from the holiday bowl. You refuse <laughs> to leave, sitting on the sidelines. Meanwhile, everybody's chanting, we want the chicken. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> the first holiday bowl, BYU versus Navy. Right. And, uh, yeah, the local local officials who were putting on the game basically did not care for me to be at the game. I don't know why, but uh, they were very buttoned down in their approach. But I said, wait a minute, I go to all the football games, Charger games, Aztec games, high school games around town. I did them all, you know. Yeah. So I'm going to the game, okay. So I, I, I go to the game, and, and uh, as usual, I, I hopped the railing and got onto the sidelines and started goofing around with the cheerleaders and such. And here came security. They came to haul me away. And the security was very good. But I said, Ted, they're putting us up to this. We don't want to do this, but we're, they're asking us to take you off the field. And so what did I do? I sat down. I did a sit-down strike on the spot, and the whole stadium started booing, like, no, no, you can't take the chicken. And so everybody started chanting, we want the chicken. And you know where I was? I was, uh, I was, uh, I was sitting right next to the Navy goat right there. <laughs> and so I, re- I refused to exit the field. Finally, security said, all right, that's enough of this. Let it go. And I was able to continue with my antics. Wonderful. Let, let's talk a little bit about WrestleMania. I mean, e- even Donald Trump did WrestleMania, but there was a guest inside the chicken costume at WrestleMania 15, wasn't there? Yes, there was. Good. <laughs> that's a good analysis there. Believe it or not, uh, uh, Pete Rose had a, uh, had a, a, a big running feud with, uh, I believe it was, uh, um, uh, who was it? Kane. I'm trying to, yeah. Kane. Uh, Kane, that's right. Right. A great Kane. A monster of a man. Thank yeah. you. <laughs> oh, a monster of a man. But you know what? A gentle giant. He really is. I hate to uh, break it to anybody, but anyway. But, uh, um, uh, but Pete Rose, uh, had a running feud with him and he decided, uh, that after my appearance at WrestleMania, that he would steal my outfit. Put it on and enter the ring for a bit right before Kane's big match. Uh, I think it was against Triple H, and I can't recall for sure. But um, and so Kane is suspe- uh, was very suspicious about. Uh, Wait a minute, this chicken ain't the right size as he was earlier, and he rips the head off, and it's Pete Rose oh, in my costume. Oh boy! And then 
He puts him into a pile driver um, uh, move, and uh, boom, down goes Rose. Down goes Rose. Down goes Rose. <laughs> and that was the end of it. <laughs> yeah, they call it, for, for those wrestle, wrestling folks out there, he got tombstoned by Kane. That, 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 that's that's right, the, the, the terminology. Yeah, oh, boy. Oh, so much Pete fun. Pete Rose. So now, much fun. Now, you made a cameo appearance, Ted, in the cult classic Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Oh, believe it or not, uh, this was back in uh, the, the 70s. And uh, and I'm going to tell you a little backstory about that, Bill. Yes, it was. Uh, I really enjoyed that. I was there for the climax uh, of where where the townsfolk. I led the townsfolk against the the invasion of all these uh, tomatoes. And uh, actually, it was a it was a student it was a student film. Nobody got paid, um, and, but it 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 was. Uh, affectionately known as the worst movie ever in the history of Hollywood. I'm <laughs> right. proud to say. <laughs> but get this. The the producers, the directors, and the writers approached me to star in it from the beginning. And believe it or not, I couldn't do it because of my schedule. Literally. I was I was packed up full and and um with games and all kinds of appearances and uh I couldn't break away to, to to shoot for 2 weeks straight and so I couldn't I couldn't star in it and 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 it's one of my greatest regrets uh the only thing I had room for was to do an afternoon shoot uh, back then of uh of the climatic scene and and we did that and uh, as the as the film got to be so infamous uh, uh, of it, I just, it, I just regret that I, I didn't have the time to, to star in it as I, as I would have, you know. And uh, and it's interesting to note, if I can add, sure, the sequel, the sequel of Attack of the Killer Tomatoes starred George Clooney. Believe it or not, amazing. Yeah. Yep. That 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 was uh, qu- quite a series. The the Attack of the Killer Tomatoes films. Yeah. That- what launched it at the time, Bill? What really helped launch it was when HBO featured it. You know, and everybody went nuts. HBO is going to feature <laughs> Attack of the Killer Tomatoes. Holy moly! <laughs> yep. Uh, that was a great one, Ted. Now, befitting a sports star of of uh, your particular prowess. You were featured by Donruss in their uh, baseball card set and uh, given your own card. It's it's remarkable, Bill, to say so myself. Talk about a feather in your cap. Yeah. This is it. It, it was the first time in baseball card collection history that a non-player or non-MLB um, principal had been involved in a card set. I was just a fan, a fan out of the stands. You got to remember, and it, and apparently the popularity was such that Don Russ approached me in 1982 and said, "Can we please make a card of you and include it in the baseball card set yeah. that we're putting out?" I was flabbergasted. Talk about it, high honors. There you go. I said, "Sure," and and then it was such a popular feature. They did it again in '83. And then they did it again in 84. And then they came out again with a special set uh, a few years later, the triple play set, I believe they called it. And then meanwhile, there were other um, uh, card companies like Upper Deck that they used me in, in, uh, in a photo with uh, 
doing a sketch with uh, Cecil Fielder in Detroit. Mm -hmm. So a Cecil Fielder's card with a cameo appearance of the chicken with him. And then... um, and now, uh, subsequently, Don Russ and uh, its parent company Panini have put out a series of cards uh, that are still uh, that they're still printing to this day. Well, that that shows that you have arrived, Ted. That certainly certainly exhibits it right there. Well, I tell you, Ted, it's been a real pleasure. Thanks for taking time out of your Sunday night to spend it with us up here in New York. We we uh, we had a ball with you, and we really appreciate it. Well, Bill, thank you very much for the interest and uh, and allowing me to share a few anecdotes uh, with your listenership. That's very kind of you. Thank you. Happy holiday season to you, Ted. Happy Thanksgiving from the chicken, folks. Thanks again, yeah. Ted. I'll be laying low on Thanksgiving. Yeah. Thank <laughs> All right. <laughs> That's Ted Giannoulis, folks. That'll do it for me tonight on Sports Talk New York. I'd like to thank my guests. Josh Tolley and Ted Giannoulis, my engineer Brian Graves, and of course you guys for joining us. I'll see you next week, November 13th. Bernie Nichols and Derek Sanderson, some great hockey talk. Till then, be safe, be well. Bill Donahue wishing you a good evening, folks. expressed in the previous program did not necessarily represent those of the staff, management, or owners of WGBB.